Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsel, Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. Uh, today we have a special topic on uh, smart cities or the future of cities. Obviously, uh, very, very topical at the moment, uh, especially as people start to hopefully um, go back to work or even go back to school even. And uh, hopefully some sense of normality is uh, returning although you do get the sense it will never be normal. Today we have uh, James Pomeroy from uh, HSBC, who's a global economist. James uh, joined us last year uh, at a very popular podcast. Uh, so James, very happy to see you on again. Pleasure to be here again. It was a uh, fun last time. Hopefully this conversation is just as fun. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in addition, we have uh, Melly Merlo, who's a, a portfolio manager in uh, Zurich, uh, Melanie, uh, welcome to the podcast as well. This is your first time. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Moss. Very happy to be here. I guess, um, James, um, obviously, uh, you've become a bit of an expert in, the, in the, uh, the future of cities and smart cities. Uh, um, it's always fascinated me in terms of, you know, how did you stumble up, up upon this particular sort of topic? And, uh, and you know, what are the things that... Uh, uh, interest you most, or certainly in the beginning, and suddenly, and it suddenly it's kind of a bit of a steamroller as uh, as the pandemic rolled on. Well, exactly. It, it's a topic that's definitely got a lot more interesting to people in the course of the last eighteen months than it was previously. Um, but it's something we've been looking at sort of four or five years, and it started from a sort of evolution of my work into demographics, which I think is such a fundamentally important topic for the way we think about um, the global economy and the different interactions between different economies across it. Um, and that sort of took me down the path of cities because one of the biggest issues you have is not just the number of people in an economy, but where they live, how productive they are, all of those challenges and it leads you very quickly to start thinking about urbanization and once you start sort of going down that rabbit hole it gets deeper and deeper you start thinking about all the interesting challenges that are out there you think yes cities are great um, but there's a whole load of issues be it sort of housing congestion pollution and all the sort of things i'm sure we'll be discussing um, and in each one of those is in itself a very very interesting topic and i think all of those things together um, were very interesting pre-pandemic but as you say we're now in a, in a new normal or we don't really know what this is going to look like. And it means that the future of cities is a very, very interesting topic because it's so important um, to, to global growth story and to the, and to the um, performance of a lot of businesses um, across the world is so dependent on what cities look like over the next decade or so. So uh, you published uh, a lot about cities even before the pandemic. How's that uh, evolved, you know, over that time? Uh, obviously, at the beginning, it was all about these kind of big emerging market cities and and um, and uh, urbanization and this sort of a big move in in some of the major economies like China from rural areas into those cities, and even in surprising places like you know Japan and Tokyo where they've got a demographic problem, but those cities are still growing as well. Um, how's your thinking kind of evolved over the last uh, three or four years? So it's interesting, as you say, you've had over the past few decades, it's all about, it's all been about megacities, these huge metropolises that have just grown and grown and grown in the developed world and in the emerging world. They, those cities have drawn people in. And they've drawn people in because people want access to jobs, 
They want access to the best quality of life services in particular. This is a big thing in the emerging world. You know, the best healthcare, the best education, the best job opportunities are all in the big cities. And you get this sort of economies of scale, essentially, within cities of everyone sort of coming together and the sharing of ideas. And that creates a very, very good quality of life. Um, even pre-pandemic, though, we were a little sceptical um, about how much this trend um, would persist in the developed world. Um, and that's really because you've got two things at play. First, you've got a demographic story um, where people generally move to cities when they're young. They're generally in their 20s or 30s and some people when they're sort of retiring. But the biggest move is amongst those people aged 20 to 30. But the demographic tilt in the West is actually now sort of against higher levels of urbanization. It doesn't necessarily mean it goes down, but it's against it. You don't get the same flow of, uh, of young people who would move to cities. But also the slow emergence um, of remote working. Um, and the idea was that you know, over time you need to be in the centre of a city, you might go to a smaller town or a satellite town or a suburb um, because you can do your job from home one, two, three days a week and people are more willing um, to take a, take a longer commute. Now, of course, the pandemic has accelerated that story. I remember writing pieces you know, back in 2018, 2019, um, saying, you know, one of the biggest solutions to the problems we've got in cities would be to work remotely much more. And this was sort of written on a, by 2030, this could really change. And here we are coming towards the end of 2021, and we're already um, in that position. And I think that story has really sort of evolved quite quickly. Where in the developed world, we're now very much expecting the fastest growth to come in small cities, towns, um, less sort of um, popular cities in the past where the cost of living is cheap, where the access to, to, to amenities is still high, um, but that relative cost of living um, is much lower. In the emerging world, though, that, that pre-pandemic story hasn't changed, I don't think, because the fundamental drivers are still there for those bigger cities. Yes, it might be that you see some, some medium-sized cities do quite well um, additionally, but you still need access to those amenities. You still need fast internet. You still need healthcare. You still need um, access to education. And those things in many emerging markets are only available in the bigger cities, whereas in the, in the West or in the developed world, you have access to high-speed internet in the countryside. You have access to a GP. You have access to good education. So the story is quite different. And that could change in the emerging world over the course of the next decade or so. But at least for now, um, I think we're still in this story um, of much, much higher urbanization rates um, in the emerging world, still um, in those bigger cities and where, where people are still going to be drawn to. So obviously pandemic has uh, accelerated a lot of these uh I guess work from home trends and and the emergence of the call it the second tier or even third tier uh, cities and and towns where people can get to and connect very very quickly. Um, how do you think that model in a post pandemic world from the Western perspective? Talk a little bit about emerging markets in a second. In a Western world, how do you think that kind of plays out? What are the kind of key ingredients for those second or third tier cities? Do you think? I think a little bit of this does depend on the country you're thinking about. So you have a very, very different story in somewhere like the UK, um, where you have sort of a one massive city, a handful of smaller cities, and a lot of satellite towns and, and villages, quite frankly, um, that are joined up very, very well. And that means that your choice, if you don't want to live in central London, you could live in Birmingham, you could live in one of the many commuter towns around London, and you can still get in and out of the city relatively easily. If you were to take somewhere like the US, the story is slightly different because that train commute is less common, less popular. But actually what you get in some cases is flying commuting. You, know, you can get on a plane for half an hour for 40 minutes. is isn't uncommon. 
um, for, for a lot of people for a day or two's work. And so you could see sort of this broadening out away from some of these bigger cities. And, and the, the, um, the, the area of opportunity, I guess, is much greater. Then you've got the complete opposite story in somewhere like Australia, where you've essentially got big cities and then just rural wasteland. Um, or, or very, very small collections of, of houses. And so you don't have that same sort of situation where you would move to a sub to a sort of a smaller town around a city so much as you would um, in, in the UK or the US. So I think that, that model changes quite a lot. Um, but I think those those smaller areas where it's cheaper, where you can get more for your money, where you've got access still to, to, to high quality education, to fast internet, to those things, will do really, really well. And it is, it, that connectivity is still important. Because we're not going to go away from um, in-person contact completely. You've still got a lot of demand for leisure activities in cities. That's still where a lot of those activities take place. Think about sporting events. Think about gigs. Think about best restaurants, best bars, all of the their shows, theatres, all of the things that we love doing that we haven't been able to do so much for the last 18 months. They're all in cities, and that connectivity and that ability to get to and from them, I think, is very, very important. And particularly amongst the generation who typically would be moving out of cities, and it's people in their 30s or 40s, they still want to go and do those things. And actually, I think that's that. The winners are going to be those well-connected, affordable, high quality of life places to live, but still give you access um, to, to those big cities where all of the excitement and, um, and I guess, entertainment is. Mm, absolutely. In terms of um, one point you touched upon, um, the de- demographic situation. You know, if I if I kind of replay back twelve, thirteen years ago, everyone's talking about the millennials and their habits, and they're moving to cities. Now they're obviously a bit more mature, having children, <laughs> and then moving out uh, again. Um, that kind of ebb and flow um, that is certainly in our guess in the more Western world. Um, uh, any thoughts around that? Yeah, it's an important trend. This is a huge cohort of people um, who essentially, you're starting to think, if you're someone in your 30s or 40s today, what do you want? Um, And and what that cohort wants is really, really important. And it's generally going to be two, three, four-bedroom houses, maybe three, four, five-bedroom houses, somewhere, as I sort of alluded to, that's commutable or easily accessible to a city or to a big city, um, and you know, has outside space, has somewhere with good education, good schools, um, has fast internet so that you can work, from, work remotely pretty easily. Um, and I think it creates this interesting dynamic of, of, of cities almost competing for that, that group of people, or not necessarily cities, but towns as well. You know, can you basically pitch yourself as a great place to go and live for young professionals who, who want to be in the office one, two, three days a week, but also want to have a great school for their kids in a garden for them to play in? And I think that model is going to be really, really interesting. This is almost like a pitch for people. And that's why I think the pandemic has really changed things, um, is it's much easier for people to imagine that environment now. You know, we've lived for 18 months or so without going into offices um, in the same way as we used to. And you're much more used to working from home, much more reliant on your local area. And that sort of appreciation of local um, culture and friendliness and safety and amenities um, is greater than it's ever been. And I think that creates a really interesting um, proposition for, for towns and, and smaller cities um, to, to compete for people. And I think it's, it's a key driver of investment um, over the course of the coming years. Mm. So obviously one of the big topics in the UK has been Goldman Sachs opening up uh, an office in, uh, in Birmingham. Um, mm. um, I, I guess that's one of the classic 
you know, uh, outcomes that we uh, that we will see, I suspect, going forward. But it's probably a trend that's been quite common in the US for, for some time as a uh, as uh, you know, if you're in kind of tech hub space, you've gone to Phoenix, or if you're in financial services, you've gone to Florida, usually for tax benefits as well. Um, um, there are kind of sort of two or three sort of sub trends, you know, within all of that. Um, tax seems to be the bigger issue in the US, where you know tax rates in Texas and, and Florida seem to be you know the the key cash age. Are there other places in the world that have similar type of uh, setup. You're right about the US being a slightly different story because you have sort of state by state tax rates and that makes it quite easy for this sort of appeal to people. But it's a sort of a bigger version of what I was just alluding to from a sort of individual town and city perspective is basically trying to say, look, if you want to do business, this is where you can do it. And it doesn't, you don't need to be in the same place you were previously because it's much, much easier to change that location than maybe we'd ever realized. You know, the fact that the whole world went overnight to remote working and was fine. Um, in most parts, um, probably opens a lot of businesses' minds to actually, we've been based here for 50 years or for 10 years or whatever it needs to be, um, but do we need to be? And actually that story starts to create these greater opportunities for be it a state, be it a city um, who can compete. I think on the other, in, in places where you can't get those same t- tax advantages necessarily, what you might see is some sort of more uh, sort of basic sort of approaches, such as simply paying people to move. Um, you know, discount on rent or paying individual people some money to move to your area. Um, we've seen some of that in the US, actually, of some towns and cities literally paying people to go and move there. Um, but then that's almost like a, a direct sort of carrot approach. But you can do the sort of more subtle um, carrot approach, which is, you know, redeveloping certain areas of your city to, to make cheap office space for businesses who do want to be based there, um, providing some local benefits for, for employees or any of these things to try and attract businesses. Um, and I think that's, that's an, as I say, something that's probably opened up as an opportunity for businesses in the last um, year or so in a way that wasn't sort of thought about before. And it means that we could see this greater spread out of businesses across countries. And that geographical spread away from the big cities, I think, is really positive economically. Because what you end up doing is you you don't have these sort of concentrated hubs of wealth and activity and business, and you spread that around, and then you get the satellites coming off it. So you mentioned Goldman Sachs in Birmingham, but if Goldman Sachs, instead of having all their workers in London, they have some in Birmingham, but that means those workers can live on the edge of Birmingham, and that then grows those towns, and then so on and so on. And you can start to see that across the UK and across the rest of um, the developed world. And I think over the medium term, this is a really positive development um, because it will help to level up um, economic activity across countries, and that can only be a good thing. Mm. Yeah, I was uh, recently re- reading that um, the uh, new energy area for the UK is Grimsby. <laughs> That's going to be quite an interesting one. And I yeah. think m- 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 most of my colleagues uh, around outside of the UK, uh, Grimsby is not a Sasha Baron Cohen <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, uh, movie. It's actually a, a place uh, yes. on the uh, <laughs> on the east coast, or no, northeast, I guess. Um, so, um, uh, moving then on to, so I guess, emerging markets. Um, are we, um, because uh, again, the trend is very, very different. So you, I, mm. I don't think what the message we're getting clearly here is it's not a one size fits all. It's going to be very different geographically. Geology has a big part uh, to 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 play here. On the emerging markets, the trends are slightly different. Um, you know, the big mega cities are all probably going to be in the 
you know emerging markets um what you again touched upon a little bit earlier but maybe you can you know how do you know these big mega cities how do they actually um uh, attract all those people from those urban areas to uh to, to come into those cities it's, it's it's interesting in the emerging world. It is a, it is a very very different story because it's all about amenities. And the biggest risk for these mega cities in the emerging world is if you started to get the amenities popping up to be a better quality um, in a lot of the smaller cities. Um, you've seen this in uh, in some emerging markets where this has been um, the case in, in Brazil, for example. Some of the smaller cities have invested very very heavily into things like providing um, fast internet. Uh, or um, investing in having really good schools. And there's a lot of upfront investment. What that does is it draws people in that otherwise would have gone to Sao Paulo or Rio de Janeiro, and instead they end up in these smaller cities, and then they really boom as a result because once the momentum starts, the incentives to move in um, increase. But that doesn't happen overnight. It's a very slow um, process. And if you're um, someone who lives in, um, be it India or Indonesia or Mexico or even Brazil to an extent, um, and you start thinking, okay, I've grown up in a very small town or in a village and I want to move for opportunities, the opportunities are still in the big cities. That's where all the best jobs still are. That's where um, all the best access to amenities are too. Um, and it's an important distinction because also you've got the nature of jobs in many emerging markets is very different. If you look at the sort of the breakup of, of employment between manufacturing, agriculture, services, that sort of mix of jobs is much more um, suited for sort of big cities um, in the emerging world. We've got a lot of jobs in manufacturing or in-person work. Whereas in the developed world, where you've got a lot more jobs and services that can be done remotely, that trend is very, very different. And again, that shift in terms of the job composition is a very, very slow-moving story. So I think if we were to have this conversation in 10 years' time, 15 years' time, maybe that emerging market story is a little more similar to the developed market one. But that would require um, in levels of investment in infrastructure that are I don't think anyone is forecasting um, anytime soon. So I think until that happens, um, we're still in a, in a world, in the emerging world at least, where those big cities are still where people are naturally going to be drawn to. Mm. Now, one of the things that you wrote um, a couple of years ago was about traffic. And uh, obviously one of the big um, issues with um, mega cities and, and these larger cities is just the infrastructure to get in, to travel around, tubes uh, or undergrounds uh, and so on and so forth uh, what are sort of s some of the key things about uh, you, know, you had some very interesting stats about how much waste um, is created as a result of people sitting in traffic jams and so on and so forth uh, maybe you can kind of enlighten us a bit more on that <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a, it's a key um, key topic I think for cities, and it's something I'm I'm very very passionate about. I think urban congestion is one of the biggest problems we face as society. Um, the average person in London or in Paris supposedly spends about three days a year sat in traffic. Now that, that is such a waste, not just in terms of that time, but think about the spillovers that has in terms of things you miss or delays or stress and all of those things. And those numbers are, are far far worse in in many emerging market cities where the urban infrastructure is much weaker either in terms of quality of roads or in terms of um, the, the availability of public transportation. And I think it's a challenge that cities are going to face 
um, over the course of the next few years, um, particularly post-pandemic, when there's a, clearly a bit of a reluctance um, from people to get back um, on, on public transportation. Um, and if you look on the figures that's published by some of these authorities, so if you take the MTA um, in New York, um, the amount of people driving over bridges, for example, in New York is at 115% of pre-pandemic levels at the moment. So it's up considerably in an already pretty congested city. Um, public transportation use is about half um, of normal. So you had this huge congestion problem in cities to begin with, and it's getting worse because people are a bit reluctant to get on public transport. Now, that could be um, one of those things that changes over time, people become a little bit more comfortable with closed enclosed spaces with a lot of strangers, but there might be a reluctance for quite some time. And it may not be anything to do with the pandemic itself. It may be that we've all suddenly realised that cramming onto a into a metal box underground isn't as appealing as it was before because we're so much more um, aware of the other diseases and illnesses we can catch off of people. Um, and and if that is if that is persists, then you've got a bit of a problem because if people do continue to drive or to get taxis or all of those things, urban congestion becomes a huge problem. Um, it's economically damaging, as I sort of explained. It helps cause pollution. And yes, you can solve the pollution problem with um, electric vehicles, but electric vehicles still cause congestion. And I think you're going to have to see a lot of cities across the world think really hard about how you tackle that problem. Either you go for the carrot approach, which is you make public transport cheap, efficient, reliable, clean, all of those things, or you have to go for the stick and you basically make driving cars in cities very, very hard. And some places have done this in clever ways. Um, I enjoy the sort of the nudge approach that you've had in the likes of Amsterdam and Copenhagen where you take out car parking spaces and just basically say you can drive all you like, nowhere to park, so um, so good luck. Um, or some cities that have just closed entire roads to cars and just said, nope. And what I think Stockholm did this um, quite well where they found one of the roads that was used most by commuters and just closed it. And basically meant that the journey time to most parts of the cities doubled if you drove, and suddenly the trade-off to use public transport was much, much greater. So it's little things like that I think we're going to see much more of, but generally a, a, a trying to get people to not use cars. Um, and I think that's something that was really important ahead of the pandemic. And as I say, the, the sort of reaction of people to the pandemic has meant it's a much, much greater problem. And yeah, I say this as someone... It's easy for me to say this as someone who's lived in London for pretty much their entire adult life and doesn't have a driving license, but um, <laughs> car, cars, car usage is going to have to come down um, across the world as we uh, as we go um, as we go forward. Yeah, um, yeah, that's uh, kind of depressing for all those uh, car <laughs> car uh, uh, freaks out yeah. there. Uh, it's uh, not going to be the same. Um, and obviously there's been kind of successful ones, obviously congestion in, in uh, charges in, in the UK have actually been generally yeah. quite quite successful uh, as well. Yeah. It's one of the models. Just quickly on congestion charges, that's something that we might see in terms of funding. Because if you think about public transportation, you want to keep them those services running because even if they're half used, if you cut the amount of um, the service, then people are less likely to use them. So, you see, so if you're somewhere, someone like TfL who relies very heavily on um, ticket sales, well, actually, your revenue's been crushed at the moment, so you need to get that revenue back somewhere. So something like congestion charging can work quite well as a, as a means of, of getting that money back. And what you could see um, going forwards is something like a congestion charge or equivalent in many cities across the world, but at an extraordinarily high level. Um, to try and sort of crush the number of traffic, um, you know, cars on the road, but also to keep revenues quite high to cover the costs 
I mean, if you have fewer people traveling, because even if people work from home, you're going to cut the number of people traveling over a longer period of time as well. So there's going to be a revenue shortfall that's got to be made up somewhere. Now, one of the things um, I know, Melanie, you're, you're passionate about as well. And uh, James, no doubt you are as about bikes. <laughs> um, mm. And uh, obviously, um, we've been used to, uh, I guess, uh, uh, lots of middle-aged men wearing Lycra. Um, has been very popular, in fact, as probably the single reason why golf memberships have dropped so much. Um, <laughs> but um, what's your thoughts around kind of bikes and, um, and uh, you know, obviously very healthy, keeps people sort of moving. Uh, any thoughts around around that and what are the trends within that? Mm. I think bikes, bikes is a really, really interesting um, part of the urban transportation mix that is really underused by most cities. Um, I say this as someone who in my teenage years before I moved to London used to cycle everywhere. You know, in the town I grew up in, cycling was so easy, so safe, easy to get across um, town. And I moved to London and I didn't get on a bike at all mm. because it's so dangerous. You, know, you, you have in, in some places, you've got cycle lanes for highways, all of those things. But the grand scheme of things, it is a pretty dangerous place to be a cyclist. And I think that's something that cities are going to have to think about much more seriously. Their bikes are, are genuinely great for the urban transport mix. They're a good way of getting people across town quite quickly. Very, very clean, of course. It's healthy because it gets people outside. Um, and we're going to see many more cycleways and cycle paths unbuilt. Now, people then say to me, yes, but that's all fair and well in the summer, but what about in the winter? Well, the city in the world that has the most people commuting by bike is Copenhagen. Now, half the people in Copenhagen commute by bike. I don't know if you've ever been to Copenhagen in the middle of winter. It gets pretty cold, but you still see everyone out on their bike cycling through. And why do they do it? It's because the Copenhagen government have made it unbelievably safe. It is so easy to get around Copenhagen on bike. Um, I've done it myself as a tourist. You just pick up a bike. There's cycle lanes that are protected by a curb, so you're, you're hidden away from the road um, on pretty much every single street in the entire city. It is so easy and safe to cycle that why wouldn't you? And I think that's the sort of investment we're going to need to see uh, more cities make. And this fits in with this longer-term idea that car usage has to fall because you can almost repurpose roads in a way that you've cut them down to single lanes and that gives you an opportunity to have you know, bike lanes on either side of a road or to have wider pavements, which encourages people to walk more or to have more outside seating or all of these things. I think that's where we're going to go because cycling, it makes so much sense in so many cities. Now, it's easier in smaller cities and tighter cities. It's much harder in some of the sprawling US cities. But even there, there's little journeys that people make by car that don't need to be done by car. They can be done by bike or they can be done by electric scooter or whatever form of transport you want to do. And making that easy and safe has a massively transformative impact um, on, on cities. And say, the two most cycling cities in the world, Copenhagen and Amsterdam, really do score very well on a lot of environmental studies. And given the importance of the environment to a lot of cities across the world, I can only see bike usage going in one, one direction. Mm, no, absolutely. And electric bikes um, are all yeah. the rage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm going to ask uh, Melanie um, to, uh, just to come in here. Um, I think uh, Melanie's been busy working on um, the uh, Our Smart Cities initiatives and... Um, and, uh, you know, I, I know, Melanie, you have a few questions on, on buildings. So over to you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Moss. I think when you're talking about sustainability, it's very interesting also to talk about buildings. 
Um, so I think traditional buildings use a lot of energy and are a major contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. So in the, according to your report, what I read is that buildings account for about 30% of total global energy use. So really a huge figure. And then on the other hand, you have green buildings and they consume up to 50% less energy and emit around 35% less CO2. So I was just interested in what makes a building really a green building and where do you see the major opportunities for efficiency gain when it efficiency gains when it comes to designing, constructing, or retrofitting buildings? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of parts to this story. Um, the first of which is obviously in terms of energy usage to heat them or to, to power them in various different ways, and part of that comes from the energy mix that you're using um, in, in an urban area. And we're seeing actually a lot of this, particularly in the US actually, of cities themselves really trying to change the energy mix coming into their city um, because that that sort of energy mix coming from more renewable sources helps to cut the sort of CO2 emissions that come from these buildings that consume a lot of energy directly or indirectly. Then you've got, of course, the construction of them themselves. Can you make buildings be better insulated or can you make airflow through them better or can you um, do all of these things? And there's a whole load of sort of new... Um, sort of materials that have been sort of, I guess, invented over the course of the last few few years that have helped buildings to do that much, much better, to be insulated cheaply, um, all of those things, as well as using uh, materials that are less carbon intensive to produce in the first place. So all of those things together can make the energy um, cost of buildings um, much, much lower. You've also then got a lot of interesting things happening around um, using plants around buildings, you know, putting gardens on roofs or on the side of buildings that can help to generate, um, they're going to help to sort of support the environment as well. And of course, you've got things like solar panels and wind um, generators that can be attached to buildings in various locations um, that, that can help to generate energy themselves. And all of these different things can be chipped away at and help to cut down um, energy usage from buildings. They can help cities to be much more efficient. The thing you don't notice, though, as much from a building compared to a car is the emissions don't necessarily happen in the local area. And this is the big difference. If you had sort of a, a very dirty building, an old building that's not very well insulated and so on, the, the environmental damage doesn't happen on its doorstep in the same way as a car driving past outside, which is why typically it's easier and more politically um, sensible for, for, um, for governments to go after the car side because you notice it much, much more. Whereas actually the changes in terms of retrofitting buildings and so on has a less sort of, I guess, tangible impact. Um, for, for residents of your city and therefore is a little bit further down the priority list. Um, but also it's just as easy to do because if you start trying to ban cars and so on, that gets a lot more opposition than making buildings to be designed to use less energy. Moving on to, I guess, the big topic of the day is around infrastructure spending. Um, obviously, we've got uh, a lot of bills coming in in the uh, in the US, in Europe, uh, pretty much anywhere in the world at the moment in terms of the spend on infrastructure. Obviously, UK's also had its um, fair share as well with uh, big, big projects. Um, what's your, what are your thoughts in terms of this new set of infrastructure spending that's going to come in and how do you think cities may benefit from that? I think 
infrastructure spending is going to be such an important part of the economic recovery across the world, not just in the US where we have these enormous um, packages being announced, which are clearly um, going to play a big role in the growth story there in the coming years. But across the whole world, actually, I think it's the perfect opportunity to invest in infrastructure, something that has been hugely underfunded in the past few years or past decade or so post-financial crisis and something that almost is a guaranteed win in an environment of very low interest rates, shortage of jobs and a need for economic stimulus, it is a guaranteed winner as far as I'm concerned. And I, I'm hopeful at least that more governments across the world will, will follow um, these sort of big figures we're seeing out of the US and you'll see more and more urban and rural um, investment in, in a lot of infrastructure that's very much needed. Now, on the urban side of things, it's a challenge at the national level to think about if you've got national government spending on infrastructure, how much of that goes into certain towns and cities is a big question. You know, it's actually quite political in nature as well. You know, if you think about a UK context, do, do we need much more investment in the north? Well, arguably, arguably yes, to improve the connections between cities, to improve railway networks, um, to improve um, internet speeds. But also then a lot of economic activity does take place in London. And so is there an, is, where should the money be spent is a very, very interesting question. And I think that's, that's something that could um, sort of... Um, not sort of blight the story, but it could sort of dampen some of the spending and how it's done um, because of those political ramifications. But I think on top of that, what we're going to see is on a local level, a lot more investment spending that comes from either state governments or comes from um, city governments themselves. Um, because it, the, the big problem in the past few decades has been funding. Now, if you're a city, generally um, you struggle to have enough money um, coming in to service what you want to go and spend. But actually, there's a lot more avenues to get funding nowadays than there ever has been. And the best example is the green bond market. Now, I'm quite optimistic that not necessarily today, but over the course of the coming years, it'll be much more commonplace for City X or Town Y um, to issue a green bond to build a new tram network or to buy an X number of buses or to redo the roads or to put in um, fast internet speeds. I think all of those um, things are going to be much, much more commonplace. And the advantage of green bonds is, one, you can borrow pretty cheaply. Um, and secondly, you can spread the cost of that over a long period of time, so, i.e. if you invest in infrastructure, the benefits are accrued over a long period of time. If you've got to spend the money up front to then accrue the benefits over a long period of time, it's a much, much harder thing to do politically. Whereas if you can marry the two up exactly with a green bond that says this money is for this project, actually it becomes much easier um, to do so. And I'm hopeful that we start to see um, a lot of towns and cities tap that market um, going forwards. And that could allow us to see a huge boom in urban investment. And it's something that cities and towns have an incentive to do, because going back to what we were saying earlier about the attracting people, if you put in a good transport network, or you put in good 5G, or you put in a nice park, you know, all of these things are reasons why people might want to go and live there, and it, and it pays for itself. So, yeah, Melanie's in Zurich at the moment, and uh, yeah, Zurich is definitely one of the better places to uh, to get around. That's uh, certainly uh, certainly the case. Uh, so, um, just coming on to, towards the uh, close here, but uh, wanted to just you know ask your opinion on your opinion. What do you think are the best or the smart cities? Because you know, obviously, there's a lot of cities that vie for for that title. So, uh, mm. and I guess there's a big difference between. Well, I, I guess uh, the, the wannabes 
um, who who uh, really making a lot of noise about various smart city initiatives, but probably not doing very much. And then there's yeah. others that are doing a lot, but probably not really heard of. Um, obviously, when everyone says to smart cities, if some you know, first thing always comes to me in mind is Singapore. Uh, mm. But uh, you know, certainly some experiences probably not necessarily the best there either. But uh, I wanted to sort of get your thoughts on on um, you know, uh, and also I guess there's a big difference between a smart livable city versus um, uh, you know a lot of the other surveys are the best places to live. You know, it's always usually yeah. Vancouver or Zurich or someone like that. Like that. <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, quite interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, you highlight exactly right there in terms of you know, these different rankings really are quite distorted. And it's always fun to look, you know, where is the best city in the world? And there's these places we give you, here's the top 10 cities in the world, but you don't know which cities they put in the survey to begin with. So they, they, they're heavily distorted by samples and so on, however interesting um, they are. But you're right, there's some cities that always come up really, really well as the best places to live. And I think they're interesting because they're the sort of cities and what they do right that a lot of other cities are going to try and copy. So Vienna always scores very well um, as a city that is relatively small, but therefore that allows it to create a very high quality of life, efficient public services, relatively affordable housing, all of those things um, that people like and it scores well. Um, but you're right to also flag Vancouver. Um, scores incredibly well on these things. You know, London, for example, could try all it likes. It can't put the mountains and the sea next to it. So you know, there's a lot of things that you can't copy from these cities that do score um, incredibly well. Um, but then when it comes to smart cities, you have a similar sort of problem because it comes down to what you're actually measuring and what determines a smart city. And you could say, you know, as you say, Singapore scores very, very highly on a lot of metrics you would look at. So you know, how government apps are used, you know, digital interaction with government services in Singapore is up there with the highest in the world. Um, you see a very similar thing in the Middle East um, in a lot of um, places like Dubai do a similar thing um, where you've got a similar sort of very digitized um, city. Um, that works very well in a lot of ways. But then you've got the other side of the coin, which is somewhere like Copenhagen and Amsterdam, which you spoke about earlier, because they've really got on top of the environmental side in terms of transportation being very, very good, cycling, of course, being very, very popular, very livable cities um, in that sense. So I always say to people, the, the most the smartest city in the world would be if, the, if Copenhagen and Singapore just sort of merged <laughs> into one city. That would be the, the smartest city in the world. But they're both very good at different things. Um, and they're both elite in, the, in those ways. Um, and I think that it, it's not so simple to say this is the smartest city. It's just these cities are doing some good things. But I think it is something to keep an eye on. These, these surveys are sort of, you've got to take them with a pinch of salt. But the cities that do well are doing well for a reason. If they do well in a lot of those different surveys i think they flag the things that people like and the things that people like are going to be the things that other cities try and invest in in the coming years and as i say it's going to be cheaper housing it's going to be good public transportation and it's going to be a good environment to live in and the cities that do that well in the next few years will be the biggest winners so uh, put you on the spot excluding london of course you'd have the bias um what would be your most livable city it's a really tough one. I would has I'd say Sydney's up there. 
Oh, um, it's yeah. one of the most livable places in the world to live. The only reason I wouldn't necessarily move there immediately is because it's miles away from anything else. <laughs> um, and that sort of ruins that ruins it to a degree. Now, if your nearest town or your nearest other place to go is a, is a plane journey away, that sort of um, takes away some, some of it. Um, I'm a big fan of, in the US, I'm a big fan of somewhere like Boston. I think does a very good job of having a sort of a lot of the amenities you'd want for being easy to get around, very livable um, city. And then in Europe, I think Stockholm does very well. I think Copenhagen does very well. I think Amsterdam does very well. And Amsterdam has done this sort of appealing for people actually very, very well. Um, not necessarily um, during the pandemic, but pre-pandemic in terms of Brexit. They're essentially setting itself up as if you want a fun place to come and live, that's got all of the excitement and sort of, I guess, entertainment that somewhere like London's got or Paris has got, um, but also, it's really green, loads of open space, we've got loads of water, you can cycle around, it was, or at least relatively, compared to those bigger <laughs> cities, affordable. Um, then they pitch themselves. And actually, I think that, that in itself is a very, very appealing prospect. If a city can pitch itself as a livable place to live, it can thrive. And you've seen that in Amsterdam, and it's brought businesses there. And I'd say, actually, in terms of European cities that have done a great job in terms of the, the whole package in the course of the last you know, five or ten years, I'd say that's, that's up there with one of the best. Mm, excellent. Uh, so, so James, obviously keep up the good work. I think um, certainly we've done quite a lot of research and there's quite a few people out there that are doing uh, work on, on cities. Obviously, it is a bit of a mega trend and uh, uh, certainly will will continue to be. But uh, keep up the good work. After selling from the analysis we've seen, uh, your work is certainly up there. Uh, so congratulations on that. And we look forward to uh, continuing the discussion over the coming months and quarters and uh, wish you wish you the very best. Fantastic. Thanks very much for having me on. Great. Thanks, James. So that was James Pomeroy. Um, and uh, thank you, Melanie, for... Uh, for, for your inputs there certainly on buildings is very very interesting smart cities is something that we are you know very interested in very passionate about uh, so please do reach out to us if you are indeed interested to learn more and of course we've been writing with the macro team uh, some topics around that so um, thank you very much for listening and we'll talk to you next week <laughs>